Good morning, Applewood family. To any of you who are guests this morning, we are glad that you're here to join us in this worship of our God. <clears throat> you know, this will come as no surprise, but from time to time you, you, you read things that are just fascinating. The website called The Science of Us listed what they call 17 things that we know about forgiveness. Now, there was an interesting study that was referenced on who or what does not forgive. The article summarized the research this way. It's just brief. <clears throat> they said this, cats never forgive. <laughs> Scientists have observed conciliatory behavior in many different animal species. The bulk of the research has been on primates um, who often follow confrontations with friendly behavior like embracing or even kissing. Scientists have observed similar behavior in non-primates like goats and hyenas, the only species that has so far failed to show outward signs of reconciliation are domestic cats. Now there's a shocker. Who'd have thought that cats would actually be different from other creatures? There was another story that I read this week about a man who went to visit his father's ancestral village in Sicily. Every day while he was in the village, he noticed that there was this elderly woman uh, who walked with a cane through the village and, and out the other side of the village and up this steep hill. And it was a struggle for her to get up the hill with her cane. Uh, she, he learned that that, uh, that walk from her home up to the cemetery and back every day took several hours out of her day. And he was struck by that. He thought, wow, the grief that, that drives her to do that on a daily basis. You know, was it, was it sorrow over the death of a child or perhaps a, a husband, a close friend? So he inquired, and the locals told him, no, she's driven by bitter hatred. Her archenemy was buried in that cemetery. So rain or shine, the old woman walks up that hill every day to her enemy's grave just to spit on it one more time. True story. Domestic cats are not the only species that struggle with lack of forgiveness. You know, we started this series by hearing the words of Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And we've said the mission of the church, which is the people of God, is to live our lives in such a way that being a follower of Christ becomes, at least potentially, becomes attractive and causes others to want the life that we have. Because when a person has surrendered their life to the control of Jesus Christ, they are set free from the bondage of sin, from the prison of living life for themselves. They are then empowered by the Spirit of God to live in intimate relationship with God, which is what we are created for. And so we're learning in this series, I trust, that this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples both then and now, it is a guide for our prayer life, which is our lifeline to God as his people, given by Jesus to his followers so that they could experience, listen to this, so that they could experience the same level of intimacy that Jesus experienced with his father. 
Jesus wanted that for them as his followers. For them and for us. When God's people experience intimacy with their Heavenly Father, then they will become the presence of that church that Jesus is talking about when he said the gates of hell aren't going to stand against it. People who are so consumed in a love relationship with God that they become people who they were not. That is the nature of the church. And the key, we've said in this prayer, is our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father. That line changes everything. And I've said to you, it is the position out of which God's people pray. You know, we are the only people in the world as children of God, redeemed by Christ Jesus, who get to address the creator of the universe as Abba Father, and it gets his attention. And I'm afraid sometimes, for myself, and maybe you can relate, that is an incredible privilege that I get probably a little too comfortable with. And so, Abba Father... Abba, Papa, means that we are more than followers. We're his children. Sons and daughters of God. Siblings of Jesus, the firstborn son. And a willingness to believe that is what God has done for us and to pursue a vital relationship with him will then, it'll ground our, tr- our, our prayers in, in the truth of his holiness. We've said that's what puts him way beyond anything in this life that we can think of as, as good and worthy of having. And as we learn that and grow into that more and more and more, we will then long for the values of his kingdom to rule the earth. May your kingdom come. We will long for his will to rule the life of every individual. May your will be done on this earth because God's kingdom is a place that is worth living in and his will is worth doing. But we're not going to believe that unless we are pursuing that relationship of intimacy with the Father that is empowered by the Spirit of God, which is a gift from him at our salvation. And we talked last week, as far as our needs go, Give us today our daily bread. We trust him to provide for us because that is what a good father does. Give us what we need to live today. Daily bread. Just the basics, Father. Just keep me alive so I can just keep on keeping on for you and for your glory. When God is the great passion of our lives, we pray out of a place of great satisfaction in him and confidence that he will provide what we need. And of course, we find ourselves living in a culture that makes that a huge challenge. But that is a call to intimacy for the children of God. And so this morning, we turn to the next petition in the prayer. Buckle up, my friends. This is a zinger. (laughs) As, As a friend said this morning when they walked into church, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Oh boy. Yeah. So, let's stand. Read the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. We're going to include again his introductory remarks and then we're going to include the commentary uh, for a couple of verses that come right after this prayer in Matthew 6. Here we go. And when you pray... 
Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Rachel, let's put those, uh, those commentary verses back up, can we? That's perfect. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So, talk to your neighbor for a couple of minutes about that question. Why do you think Jesus only adds commentary related to forgiveness? Those are the words that he spoke about forgiveness following the prayer that he taught. Why did he just add commentary about forgiveness and not any of the other lines or petitions in the prayer? What do you think? See what your neighbor thinks. Okay, let's talk about it. Shouldn't take too long, really, if we're being honest. What do you think? Why the commentary on forgiveness... But nothing else from the prayer. Come on, someone be honest. Yeah. Or no mental health issue. (laughs) Just being a creep. Which, of course, I never am in anyone's life, so I can say that as a source of authority. Yeah. What do you think? Is this easy? Good heavens, no. It is stinking hard. And I think Jesus knowing the heart of people, thought that he probably ought to come back and uh, just add a little bit more clarification. In the event that you didn't hear this, folks, you know, let, me, let me just expand on it a little bit. Absolutely. And I think, and we'll talk just a bit about, more about it, is that you know, could, could Jesus really separate what he knew was coming in his life from what he was teaching his followers at that point. Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. And and so let me remind you again. Andy, is that a comment back there? I see that hand. Relationship with God. Okay, okay. Man, this is great. (laughs) All right, well, I've got another hour and a half for my sermon. So just, can you imagine the struggle? It's... I think it's so important for us to remember that this prayer is Jesus' invitation to intimacy with God, as as we've said many times, to address God as Father. It's it's a level of intimacy that, that I think ought to take our breath away when we really understand how it was provided. 
You know, and, and, and we know that. Those of us who've been in the church for any time at all, those of us who grew up in, in Sunday school, you know, at the heart of the gospel is forgiveness that flows from the love of God. Would you not agree? It, it, so the, the word gospel literally means good news. Well, good only makes sense if something wasn't good. And that's what Scripture clearly teaches us. Listen to Paul's words to the believers in Corinth. He said, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen to what that ministry is. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That is forgiveness. And He has committed to us, to us, His people, His followers, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Those words, not counting people's sins against them, that is a description of God's forgiveness through the death of His Son. Forgiveness is at the heart of the Gospel. The good news is that we can be forgiven for our rebellion against God that is resident in our hearts from day one. That's the Gospel. And I believe the reason that Jesus returns to the theme of forgiveness at the end of the prayer, adding some of that commentary, is because forgiveness is what makes our relationship with God possible to begin with. And I forget that. You know, when I, I, I struggle with, with forgiving others, I struggle with not extending that forgiveness to them or, or putting boundaries around my forgiveness I am forgetting that it is the open-hearted forgiveness of God that is the very reason for my salvation. We need to agree with God that we are forgiven. And based upon our faith that we have placed in His Son, I think it is then daily confession that fuels the intimacy that Jesus invites us to have with the Father because He knows that it's the tendency of our hearts, even the redeemed heart, is the tendency of our hearts to minimize our sinful actions and elevate those of others. Your sins are so much worse than mine. And if you don't believe me, let's just talk about it. I'll convince you. You know, what Jesus is saying here is just serious stuff. There is no wiggling out of it. John Stott says this, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. I think it's that reality that makes this teaching of Jesus so important for us, brothers and sisters. We must understand forgiveness through the eyes of the one who suffered and died in our place. When Jesus taught his followers this prayer, I I think he knew what what was coming. You know, he he was looking at the topic of forgiveness through the lens of the cross. 
And so extending forgiveness is really to be the MO for those who are followers of Jesus. He said, pray like this, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Here's where it gets just a little bit tricky. Because that little conjunction, the word as, just has huge significance. It's joining the two halves of that statement so that Jesus is setting up a comparison, I think, between the way we forgive others and the way God forgives us on a daily basis. Now, it's important here that we remember that Jesus is addressing his followers. He's not talking here about forgiveness that leads to salvation. I think Jesus has in mind intimacy with the Father. We have been invited in this relationship of intimacy with the Father, child intimacy with God, made possible by God himself, who has forgiven our treason against him. So when we don't forgive, we are making a mockery of the great sacrifice that God has made for us. That, I think, is what drives what Jesus is saying here. To speak those words, forgive us as we forgive others, is, in a very real sense, saying to God, I get it. You have done the unthinkable for me. So I can, by your grace and by your strength at work in my life, I can do the same for others. We are asking our Father to extend forgiveness to us on a daily basis in our relationship of intimacy in the same way that we forgive others on a daily basis. That, I think, should cause us to examine our own attitudes towards those who have hurt and offended us. To not forgive others is in sort of a backwards way, praying like this. Father, you know how hard I worked to help my neighbor on his lawn project, and now that creep treats me like I am just chopped liver. He doesn't even acknowledge my presence. I am angry with him. So, Father, please act towards me as I'm acting towards him. That's what the conjunction does in the sentence. As I forgive others, you forgive me. Father, you heard the way that person spoke about me in front of others. I am so embarrassed, and I want to get even. So, please deal with me as I deal with her. Really? Is that what we want? I like what one writer says about this line. To refuse to forgive someone else and then ask God for forgiveness is a kind of spiritual schizophrenia. You cannot have it both ways. That is why I think the additional commentary that Jesus offers is so important. Or if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Brothers and sisters, I think that means exactly what it says. There's just no getting around it. C.S. Lewis says this, no part of Jesus' teaching is clearer. And there are no exceptions to it. He doesn't say that we are to forgive other people sins, providing that they are not too frightful or providing there are extenuating circumstances or anything of that sort. We are to forgive them all. However spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated, if we don't, we shall be forgiven none of our own. Later on in 
Matthew's Gospel, he records for us the parable of the unforgiving servant. Let me just read a portion of it quickly, probably familiar to many of us. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, a pittance. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. That's not a good thing. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours? You begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This, said Jesus, is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive a brother or sister from your heart. Do you remember why Jesus taught that parable? Because Matthew, or excuse me, Peter had come to him and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times, the conventional thinking of the day. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Isn't that the concern of the human heart? That's the concern of my heart. How many times do I have to forgive this knothead? How many times do we have to go through this? Forgiveness is the most outrageous and challenging notion on the planet. Jesus knew that. And I think that's why he told this parable. He exploded what was the acceptable thinking about forgiveness for the day. The human heart cries out for fairness. Surely there's a limit to the number of times I have to forgive, isn't there? And I think Jesus answered the question again through the lens of what he was about to go through. And in so many words, he says, who's counting? Don't keep track. Just keep forgiving no matter the debt. There is nothing that is too great for the people of God to forgive because they have been forgiven a debt they could never repay. That doesn't mean that it's not hard. But it does mean that we are called to forgive. So let me bring us to the point of all this and just suggest to you that that there is a very important theological question that is raised by Jesus' teaching both in Matthew 6 in the prayer and here in Matthew 18. And you've heard it already. The question is this, is God's forgiveness unconditional? Listen closely. No and yes. 
Is there anything that we can do to earn forgiveness from God for our sin nature, for the rebellion that resides in every human heart that results in the rejection of God from his rightful place as the king on the throne of a person's life? No, there is, there is nothing that we can do to earn that forgiveness. That is grace. That is, that is pure grace. But again, these words that Jesus is speaking, both Matthew 6, Matthew 18, He's speaking to those who are His followers, those who have been granted status as children of God because He encourages them to address their Heavenly Father. They have been granted that status by God's love and grace alone. And and so then, you know this, what does that status allow His children? It's a theme in our sermon series, I've already said it this morning, intimacy with the Father. Intimacy with God. Jesus is saying that to withhold forgiveness of others for their sins they commit against us puts us at risk of being imprisoned by our daily sins that can break intimacy that we have with God as Father. And that our Father will allow the natural consequences of not forgiving to break that intimacy with us. You know, in Jesus' parable, the king did not take everything that that servant had. That was his first threat. He was going to take his family and his children and he was going to sell it all so that the debt could be repaid. The man begged him for mercy and the king decided to cancel his debt. Second time around, the king didn't require family and everything that he had. He had been granted a a gracious, amazing gift. But instead, because he didn't seem to understand the enormity of his forgiveness, the king threw him in prison to be tortured by the jailers. Interesting Greek word there. It is literally the torturers. He literally turned the man over to the torturers. Who are the torturers? Well, I can't help but think of Paul's words to the Ephesians talking about not giving the devil a foothold, not letting the sun go down upon our anger. What does unforgiveness do? It drives us to be angry. It drives us to be impatient. It drives us to be demanding in our attitudes toward others. Frankly, I think that there's a possibility that the torturers find a foothold in our lives when we are unwilling to be obedient to what Jesus has called us to. Jesus didn't say that. He, he really gives us no indication who the torturers are. I think that's a possibility. I also think medical research might give us some possibilities here. Listen to this. Lee is chuckling. You know, those of you in the medical world, you know this stuff. Studies show that there is a significant relationship between forgiveness and health. The fact is, after being hurt, being angry about it, suffering loss, all that's related to that, our body functions are significantly impacted. Changes can occur in the chemistry, the electricity in our bodies. Brain waves can be disrupted, making us able to think less clearly and make good decisions. Ever experience that when you're angry at somebody? Unforgiveness 
also causes distress to our muscular skeletal system by increasing forehead muscle tension, producing headaches and other things like stomach aches and muscle tension and joint pain and dizziness and tiredness. Uh, On and on this article goes. Talks about blood flow in your heart being constricted as a result of the tension that comes from anger and holding stuff back. Your digestion is impaired. Someone was right when they said, you know, not forgiving someone is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. The torturers. Turning us over to the torturers, to the, perhaps the, the natural results, the natural consequences of disobedience to God on a daily basis. Is he talking about forgiveness for, for our sin and the status that we have as children? No. Is he talking about forgiveness of sin on a daily basis and not not forgiving others and keeping that pathway to intimacy with our Father open? Yeah, I think he is. I think he is. So all week long I've wrestled then with what forgiveness looks like. What does it look like? You know, you do something horrible to me and, and I say to you, I forgive you or vice versa. You forgive me for something horrible that I've done, something hurtful that I've done. What does that look like? How does it play out? Back to Paul's words to the, to the Corinthian believers. God has given us the message of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So, God no longer counts the sin of my rebellion against him because of the work of his son Jesus, whom I've placed my faith in. If God is no longer counting my sins against me, then it seems to me that the call for us as God's people is to not count the sins of others against them. So when we forgive someone, it seems to me that that we're not going to keep a record. That we're not going to write them off even though they have done that same thing 69 times, but then who's counting, right? I don't think this is the same process for everyone because the offense can be so much more heinous in someone's life than someone else's life. And I recognize that some of us here have experienced things done to us at the hands of others that are just really unspeakable. But Jesus' words include those things. And so it seems to me that what we come back to is what we've said all along, and that is that in this relationship of intimacy that we've been invited into with our Heavenly Father, we have also been given the Spirit of God to prompt and to push and to nurture and to encourage and to remind us of the truths and and to convict us when we are walking outside of the truth. Jesus said, this is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive one another from the heart. That caught my attention earlier in the week. What does it mean to forgive from the heart? 
I can say the words. That's forgiveness from my mouth. But what does it mean to forgive from the heart? It seems to me that, that the heart, certainly in the scriptures, the heart is the place of our emotion. The heart is the place of our feelings. The heart is the place where we are vulnerable. And I think Jesus is suggesting to us that if you want a, a barometer on how you're forgiving from the heart, how are you in terms of thinking about being open to that person who has hurt you. And I'm not talking openness in the sense of let's be best friends. Again, I think it's different for everyone. But I think if we are willing as children of God to listen to the Spirit of God, the Spirit will direct us along the path of opening our hearts back up to something that God may want to do through that experience. I don't know what that looks like. What I do know is I'd rather build a brick wall around my heart. Heck with that, stupid. You know, that is risky, that is vulnerable, I will be hurt again. Exactly. Exactly. And again, I don't think we all arrive at the same place at the same time feeling the same stuff. I think it is a process. But what I do believe is the same for all of us, is that if we are open and we are hearing the words of Jesus, then we will understand how serious this is, how intimacy with our Father, which we ought to revel in, intimacy with our Father is jeopardized on a daily basis as we live among the torturers, the anger, the resentment, the bitterness, the hurtful memories, and hanging on to that stuff versus being honest enough to confess it. Father, I hate living here among the torturers. I need rescue. To forgive from the heart, I think, means that we are are willing, as the Spirit leads and prompts and moves us down a path, to open our lives again. In some way, as He guides to those perhaps who have caused us great pain. I want to close with a story this morning that I think is just astounding in terms of the forgiveness that it communicates. And then following the story, I've asked Lee if he would pray for us this morning. In November of 2012, Jordan Howe was a 14-year-old student at South Miami-Dade High School. He took his stepfather's pistol from its hiding place in the bedroom closet and he brought it to school. He just wanted to show off the weapon to his friends. He boarded the school bus, walked to the back, and then allowed a friend to load a bullet into the pistol. According to a witness, he began playing with it, pulling the trigger and aiming around like pretending. Quotes. But then he lifted the gun toward a 13-year-old girl named Gina Guzman de Jesus And he pulled the trigger. The bullet struck the girl in the neck. And it killed her. Howe immediately confessed, pleading guilty to manslaughter with a deadly weapon, among other charges. Two years later, in June 2014, the victim's mother 
Betty Guzman de Jesus faced her daughter's killer in court. But instead of rage and revenge, she gave Jordan Howe a tearful hug. I'm sorry, he stammered as she wrapped her arms around him, fighting back his own tears. It was part of an extraordinary gesture of forgiveness from a grieving mother who also blessed a plea deal that will allow this young man to avoid prison. Miami-Dade Circuit Court Judge Ellen Sue Venzer said, In 20 years, I have watched human tragedy unfold in this courtroom. I could have never imagined a victim's mother embracing her child's killer. The young man will remain under the supervision of the Florida Department of Juvenile Justice until he reaches 21 years of age. He must also speak to schools about the dangers of gun violence at least 12 times a year. And he must do that alongside of the mother of the girl that he killed. In light of the unusual display of forgiveness and the gracious sentencing, the judge had these final words to the young man. I hope and pray you do not squander this opportunity you've been given. Brothers and sisters, let us not squander the opportunities that God has given us through his forgiveness. Amen.